Ever wonder who would win in a battle between a manatee and a tapir? Or a moose and a tiger? Or an anchovy and a sea star? Well, since 2013, March Mammal Madness has been using the brackets-based tournament, all uh, the same as the NCAA men's college basketball tournament that inspired the name, and the narrative storytelling of imaginary epic battles between species to teach ecology. Join us on this episode of Ocean Science Radio, where we explore this wonderful nine-year tradition with an ever-growing community around it. Welcome back to Ocean Science Radio, the podcast that brings you the latest, greatest, and sometimes deepest stories in the ocean. I'm climate and ocean science communication gunslinger, Andrew Kornblatt. And I am aquanaut, shark scientist, and aspiring badass, Francis Farabaugh. On today's episode of the podcast, we are speaking with the founder of March Mammal Madness and one of the early team members who pit creatures against each other using scientific papers to support the randomized results. Much to the entertainment, excitement, and heartbreak to the ever-growing community that follows them on Twitter and beyond. And let me tell you, we will get to a personal heartbreak later. So for now, let's kick it off by introducing Katie. Hey, I'm Katie Hind. I'm an associate professor in the School of Human Evolution and Social Change at Arizona State University. And I am the founding director of March Mammal Madness. Okay, Katie, give us the lowdown. What is March Mammal Madness? What is March Mammal Madness? I guess in the elevator version, March Mammal Madness is a 65 species bracket of different taxonomic groups featured every year um, in different kinds of divisions. And a group of scientists talk about using evidence, what would happen if two of these individuals from these respective species and matchups, what would happen if they encountered each other in a particular habitat? And this plays out in narrative form on social media and kind of a live action play-by-play over the course of several weeks in March into April and has been going on since 2013 and has moved from being what was initially a science communication effort into being a big science engagement community. It started with one organizer and then now has grown to about 50 team members. They're scientists, artists, librarians, puppeteers, graphic designers, conservationists, archivists, all sorts of people coming together to put together what has become this really kind of multifactorial tournament and has really built a dynamic, engaged community broadly within the public. Paint us a word picture. How did you come up with this? How did it start? Yeah, it started because in 2013, on a Friday afternoon, I had like just the right window of time between when I was done with my work week and when the departmental happy hour started. And I was on social media and BuzzFeed had dropped an animal March Madness bracket. And I and, and as an undergraduate at a then Pac-10, now Pac-12 school, I remember fondly when the basketball March Madness would take place and we'd skip classes to watch, you know, 64 teams go down to 32 teams and, and trash talk each other's picks and cackle uproariously when there were upsets. And, and I was like, oh, this will be a really fun science-based activity for the lab. And I printed them out, handed them out, and, and I was instantly disappointed by what was in this bracket. 
While the March Mammal Madness of today is based on all sorts of key factors like defensive strategies or natural weapons and habitat specialization, the original bracket was made up of 16 species and was based entirely on cuteness. And I made my own bracket and did this really silly hype video on YouTube and posted it on my blog thinking that my mom would play. And at that time, you know, almost a decade ago, science Twitter was a different kind of place. It was smaller, people were interacting. It was just a really kind of like, we felt kind of cottage. And so people started playing. One of the best brackets made was by Josh. And he actually created an animated with the soundtrack from Mutiny on the Bounty image-based bracket and had who he thought was going to advance all the way to his champion. I think we should introduce Josh here. Some of you may recognize him from an Ocean Lovin' episode we did a few years ago. Others may recognize him from another podcast that Francis and I are on. Okay, hi. Um, good evening. Welcome to Do It on Sea Dragons, your weekly show. <laughs> <All right. laughs> Wrong thing. Hi, my name is Josh Drew. I'm an assistant professor of vertebrate conservation biology here at the State University of New York's College of Environmental Science and Forestry, which is a mouthful, so we usually go by SUNY ESF. Josh was our intrepid dungeon master for the first season of Dugongs and Sea Dragons, the live play D&D podcast put together starring marine scientists. Overall, Josh has been working on a lot of science communication, both exploring new methods and trying to push groups to be more and more inclusive. Back to Katie for the story. And by the end of that first year, as it was done and uh, African Elephant was a champion, people were like, okay, see you next year, see you in 2014. And I was like, oh, there's no way I can do this on my own. And I reached out to Josh and uh, Christy Luton and Chris Anderson, because uh, all of them had been really engaged in that year's tournament. And I was like, do you guys want to be organizers on this with me? And they they were like, yes. And so the year two, we had a marine mammal division in honor of Josh, and we had a fossil mammal division in honor of Christy. And sadly, we didn't give uh, Chris an entire insect bracket, but it, it's been... Um, a kaleidoscope of nature ever since. I can't help but notice it's called March Mammal Badness, but not all of these animals are in fact mammals. Yeah, in fact, you'll find some insects, you'll find some lichen, you'll find fishes of all shapes and sizes. In the original brackets, they did rely specifically on mammals, but as the competition grew and grew over the past nine years, they added more and more different species and even some different individual brackets. Now, back to Josh. What is your side of this story? Yeah, well, like Katie said, I think Science Twitter a decade ago was, I don't know, more collegial, smaller anyway. And there were just kind of fewer people on it and we were it was a little bit easier to keep track of it. And I feel like Katie and I have been Twitter friends for a while. I don't know how we initially met, but you know how it is. And so I was just super excited about this idea and I was teaching a conservation biology class at the time and I thought it was a really fun way to get my students into into conservation and, and into thinking about how do you uh, engage people with it and so same sort of thing I had maybe 20 minutes before class and I had my bracket done out and so I just kind of used my prowess in keynote the Apple version of PowerPoint which allows you to kind of slide things around to pull this together. And there, there's one slight editorial. It was not Mutiny and the Bounty, it was Pirates of the Caribbean because I had just I had just been finishing up a postdoc 
uh, in Chicago, and the White Sox use that as their their music when they run onto the field before they transition into Sweet Home <laughs> Chicago. And so I had this like dun 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 like this like epic music going on, and and so it just seemed the best way to illustrate that. But I, you know, immediately I thought it was such a fun way to to think about species and to learn about like i'm a fish guy so I, my my knowledge of mammals is rudimentary at best and so it's always been a little bit of a like i'm always surprised when katie keeps asking me back because like i don't know what the hell a quokka is you know like but i find out and and that's one of the things that's really great for me is that it's been an opportunity for me to explore earth's biodiversity and to find these really compelling stories that you know just sort of percolate through my daily life and, and I find so many different ways that they enrich my teaching, they enrich my just kind of understanding of the world we share with these organisms. And I think it it reinforces our need as scientists, as educators, and as conservationists to be able to to tell compelling stories that, you know, this idea of a knowledge deficit model where if you just throw research papers at people and then that affects change, that, that model is not borne out by reality and that it's really getting people to care about things and getting them to root, you know, for tardigrades, you know, things like that is really, it's an amazing way to get people to have these conversations that they might otherwise not have. So question about the actual mechanics of this. How does a battle take place? What elements are considered going into it? How is the field of battle selected and how does it all come together? Yeah, those are great, great questions about the game mechanics of the tournament. Some of the foundational rules have really held up well in how we understand the way people learn and, and engage in games for science learning. The way the tournament is presented to the public and then there's the backside of how it's planned. So what we do is we select our species, we organize them into divisions, and then we create a kind of rough seeding of them, right? Just like just like Selection Sunday in the basketball tournament. Carnivores tend to, you know, weight plays a really big role within that seeding. Aspects of temperament, weaponry, both for attack and anti-predator defenses, all of these things are kind of put into how we arrange the seedings. In the first three rounds of the tournament, the battle takes place in the habitat of the better seeded species in the matchup. They get the home habitat advantage. This provides the announcers running these fights the opportunity to talk about the adaptations these species have to their habitat and explore what happens when a species that is adapted for the grasslands suddenly finds itself in a dense, lush jungle full of panthers. Fans of March Mammal Madness can tell countless stories where the environment plays an important role in these battles. After combatants come gloriously through their divisions to the more advanced rounds called the final roar, they are placed in battles that are organized around ecosystems or other factors that give them all an equal chance on the battlefield. Back to Katie. We set on four specific habitats that we then randomize for the advanced rounds. And so this requires some really great contingent thinking because you have to think, okay, you know, this species is going to be this species in this habitat, but there's only a one in four chance that they'll be in that habitat. And so you kind of have to, you can either lean into your favorite and hope for luck to pick a habitat that will favor it, or you kind of have to interdigitate a lot of considerations and, and lean into the integrative complexity. And so that's kind of how the tournament is structured. And so when we figure out the outcomes, what we do is after, after we've got the seedings and we know the environments, we then go through each of the matchups and it tends to be a smaller group of the, of the full team just because of schedule coordinating and, and getting it done. 
Kitty and her team go through the various scenarios and discuss what are the probabilities of different outcomes. They bring in all sorts of different factors like bite force, claw sharpness, flying speed, and all sorts of fun facts. And after a cursory review of available scientific literature, they use a random number generator to officially determine the official outcome. And this is how we end up getting occasional upsets that are improbable outcomes. And our rate of upset in the tournament is 20%. Fun fact, the same rate as in the NCAA men's basketball tournament. When there is an improbable outcome though, the narrator who's gonna tell the play-by-play, -play, it's gonna tell the story to the public about what happens in the encounter, then has to go into the, the scientific literature and find some kind of, of reason for this outcome. So it can be, you know, some outside interference. It could be some other kind of, you know, it's mating season and that animal is not motivated to fight or the gut passage time does not favor trying to get a meal at this juncture. And, and so that's how we build stories out of the evidence to explain the outcomes that are ultimately decided by a random number generator based on likelihoods. So Josh, what is one of your favorite things about these battles? Tell us what stands out to you about this. One of the things I really like about the maturation of the program has been linking stories across multiple battles. Because much like in the NCAA, if your star powered forward blows an ACL in the first round, you as a team have to continue playing without your star power forward. And so we have similar situations where events that happen in one round have ramifications that are felt further on. And sometimes that, that plays into these improbable outcomes, we can kind of lean into that narrative. Or sometimes it, it creates this idea of going back to this idea of telling compelling stories, like a story where there's a complete reset every round is less engaging than one where there are there's a narrative arc, there's highs and lows. And so you start seeing people really following these kind of subplots or, or really linking onto them. And as, as Katie was saying, these are all kind of natural history based. And so you know, anybody who's ever taken one of my classes will hear me talk ad nauseum about how important it is to understand natural history, but these are the, the, the bricks around which we build these, these compelling foundations. And related to that, our longtime players know that there are these kinds of story arcs. And so we've been able to make devices of click hangers, right, that are based on evidence where we have kind of, you know, one of our team members works at Mount Rainier National Park and is involved in the Fisher Relocation Program. And so the Fisher in one round is in their, you know, home habitat and then gets captured to be relocated into a new park. And that's part of it. We've had, we've laid um, false trails. So we one time had a giant forest hog that uh, had an encounter with one of the reservoirs of an infectious disease. And so we laid the foundation that made people think that the giant forest hog was incubating a viral pathogen across rounds and then got to have a big reveal where pigs aren't actually vulnerable to this viral pathogen. And so you can play around with people's expectations and, and suspense and surprise. And those moments tend to be incredibly effective for building memories and holding on to knowledge. All right. so. What about any favorite bouts? Can you speak to any really epic battles that stand out? This year we're at 558 species. So we've had some just really epic bouts. I think 
one of my all-time favorites, which is really hard to write. A few years ago, we did a mutualisms division where uh, mutualists of two different species actually competed as a team against other mutualists. And, and there were two beloved teams at this point, the warthog and mongoose with the moniker war goose and the badger and coyote with the moniker uh, bad yote. And uh, a lot of people had either one of them as their champion. A lot was hinging on this battle and that wherever there's a lot of attention and a lot of real intense player affection, you have to give a great battle. You have to honor the combatants, even the ones that don't advance. And usually you don't want it to be too gruesome because people have great affection for these, these imaginary heroes that are based on real animals. And so I got to um, have a lot of fun diving into not just the mutualisms among these species, but getting deep into what are the sides of the carnivore guilds that these two teams actually live in. And, and you know, relative to like Sub-Saharan Africa, which has like some of the most, you know, some of the largest carnivore guilds and carnivores and, and herbivores really have to pay attention to a lot of potential danger and competition. North America is relatively impoverished. And so that ended up becoming a really important kind of part of the dialogue. And luckily for me, I found amazing footage of war goose. The warthog and the mongoose ended up defeating the badger and the coyote, which was not what was the most probable outcome in our estimation and among the fandom. But I was able to show really, really great footage of warthogs driving off honey badgers and mongooses driving off jackals and lions in particular kinds of settings. And so being able to get instant replay footage really helped to substantiate that battle and, and, and kind of telling it in a narrative way really pushed me to the edges of my narrative skill set. And it was it was really, really fantastic. And And, and the goal for me is always for people who have lost their champion at the end of the battle, for them to say, I'm not even mad, that was an amazing battle. Like, that's the goal. And Josh, uh, what about you? Any favorite bouts? I mean, it, it's really hard to pick because there's so many different ones and there's different ways to go at it. So there's been ones that have, you know, amazing natural history that have been really fun. We had a, a fantastic beast division. And, and so Katie's Were Yeti arc was just so much fun to kind of see the different ways that she could tell amazing actual biodiversity stories using fictitious vehicles. And we had another one where we were talking about Christiforms, sawfish, and, and there's many species in Australia. And we were able to bring in a group of Aboriginal Australian rangers who work on sawfish conservation. And so, you know, I think many of us, especially Katie, are really concerned about making sure that there is indigenous representation in this, that we you know, we recognize our positionality, but also talk about, recognize that we aren't the authoritative voice on biodiversity. And so finding ways to be able to have indigenous perspectives and indigenous voices be elevated, that, that meant a lot to me too. But, um, you know, I also like making people cry. Um, I really, I, I like leveraging my skill sets because I, if I can get people angry at me or if I can get people to cry, it means that they have an attachment, that my story is not just kind of there. And, you know, I, I, it's not like I like making people sad. I generally try to make people happy, but it's a, it's indicative of them caring about the story. And if you're, was it, if you're caring, you're learning. Yeah, I think, you know, the second year in 2014, when we had the Marine Mammal Division, 
Josh did a battle where the polar bear was defeated at the end and it was related to melting sea ice. And this was when I knew that this was gonna be just like a really powerful vehicle for getting people to know and care. Because somebody wrote in response to the end of that battle, like, I'm sitting here and I'm crying over this imaginary polar bear, but I know that this is really happening to polar bear. I mean, it was just, it made manifest and emotionally salient to people what's happening to our natural world. And I think that that, that narrative and that story and these characters, right? There's animal champions and villains and the heroes that you really want to advance. And then, you know, others that just kind of accidentally advance that people are like, when is it going to stop its run? Like this animal doesn't deserve to be here. I mean, we get people to like, you know, like trash talk pandas, right? Cause they're simultaneously the worst herbivore and the worst bear, but also a wonderful animal that we deeply love. And this is just part of the humor of March Mammal Madness. People still bring up incidents from 2013 and 2014 and, and they remember them and that i mean that's huge that it's having that kind of impact so many years later poor roly-poly panda bears aside katie sees march mammal madness as an ideal opportunity to bring different layers and aspects of science to brand new audiences obviously those of us involved in the tournament like josh we talk about how we we cannot lose descriptive science in pursuit of exclusively explanatory science. That these rich natural history descriptions and understanding the complexity of the way that animals are engaging within their ecosystem is just, there's, there's just such beautiful, beautiful narrative that already exists in the literature and most people don't have access to it. And, and you know, in this 21st century kinds of dialogues about open science, which I'm really into, that even when you publish open access, it's still behind a paywall of jargon. And it behooves us as scientists to remember what got us excited earlier in our careers or our childhoods and bring that wonder in an accessible way to everyone. We've cited papers from 300 years ago, some of the early kinds of descriptions or first descriptions of some of these species. And it's really fun to have this time every year where I, as a scholar, get to basically do science boot camp and learn so much. I learned so much. I'm a much better biologist because I'm a narrator for this tournament. And with that excitement brings a growing community that, as we mentioned, comes back again and again and welcomes new fans. And it doesn't matter if you are Team Wolf or Team Black Dragonfish or Team Tardigrade, you get welcomed into this community. And apart from the friendly razzing and team spirit, it is just awesome people learning about awesome species. One thing that I have been so thankful for is I feel like especially as it's matured, Twitter has become a little bit of a hellscape and, and we've seen some bad behavior there, but I feel like the community that coalesces around our game has been universally like nice people. You know, there's there's conflict, there's people who are trash talking, but I feel like the instance of, of outright trolling or people, you know, just doing poor behavior has been so minuscule. Like it's generally been like reaffirming that even in this, you know, the year of our Lord 2022, we can come together and still have a good time on the internet. And this is a nice thing that we're still able to have. I feel like I need to like touch wood or something to, to keep it that way. Yeah. The, the thing about the tournament that I find so amazing is that it has 
it has this capacity to bring people together from all sorts of spaces, but it also is really scalable and democratizing. So whether we're talking about how it plays out online, right? So you have all sorts of people interacting and joking back and forth and, um, you know, from kids to, you know, National Academy members. And that's fantastic. But then you also look at how it's playing out in classrooms. So we've, you know, we found out that teachers were using it in their classrooms and have kind of done more to facilitate their use of the tournament in meaningful ways. And so this year, the last time I checked the numbers, we have over 5,500 educators that have signed up for materials and they report that they're gonna share them with 540,000 students and how it plays out in the classroom. So some of those students come and hang out with us on Twitter and the, and the live event, or it's something that just plays out in their classroom. And for once, teachers don't have the answer. The, the teachers are playing and finding out things like hand in hand with their students. And teachers talk about how that kind of equalization within their classroom is so great for building this wonderful dynamic and culture and community within their classrooms for their students. That's right. Marine Mammal Madness is in our schools, teaching our kids about ecology and the wonders of science. So is this sports-inspired science communication tool resonating with the youth of today? And if so, why? And because there's not a guaranteed right answer to know a priori, we've also found, or at least heard anecdotally, that, that students who maybe don't feel comfortable because they don't know the right answer, use this as a vehicle to become more engaged with the class because the teacher's not there, you know, in their view, sort of judging them, but it's a, it's a group exploration. Many teachers have reported that allows students who maybe have been reluctant to speak up in front of class, that ambiguity is, is safer for them to recognize that they don't know because nobody knows. And so instead of being sitting in the back of the class, not saying anything because you're not sure, suddenly you embrace that and be like, I have no idea, but this is what I think because that's an okay answer. Continuing on that thread, we've heard from teachers similarly that this tournament engages students that aren't typically engaged in enthusiasm for science. and. Actually, at least one of the combatants this year in 2022 comes from a spontaneous slideshow a student put together in the summertime and sent to their teacher. And the teacher passed it on me. They're like, I, I have to show this to you. One of my students who hadn't really been as engaged in the science classroom until March Mammal Madness put together a suggested species combatant list and highlighted their like really exciting adaptations that they could bring to a battle and why this student was excited about them and like there were like 15 suggestions in this file and they were all these really cool slides they basically spent part of their summer working on this because they just were thinking about what animals would be cool to have in the tournament oh my god that's amazing that's adorable all right, so we're going from the adorable image of children getting super engaged in science to the ugly crying of Andrew. Quick backstory. One of my favorite species in the entire world is the Glaucus Atlanticus, a sea slug that lives on the surface of the ocean, looks like an intergalactic spaceship, and eats man-o'-wars for lunch. Not only do they eat them, but they also reappropriate the man-o'-wars poison cells for its own defensive use. 
I love them so much that not only did I get the Dugongs and Sea Dragons crew to name our boat after them, but I also bought several enamel pins for my groomsmen for my wedding that COVID never let happen. You can imagine how excited I was when the mighty Sea Slug made it to the divisional finals. And then what happened? Josh made me cry. <laughs> and here, for your listening pleasure, is a dramatic telling from Josh of the epic battle between the terrifying black dragonfish and the noble Glaucus Atlanticus nudibranch. All right, so I am now going to go ahead and we are going to go back in time to last year's March Mammal Madness, and I'm going to break Andrew's heart once again. So follow with me back to the 16th of March, 2021. All right, all right, all right, all right. The finale is the number 13 blue Gaucus versus the number four black dragonfish. As you might guess from the scientific name of number 13, Glaucus Atlanticus, and number four, Idiacathus Atlanticus, tonight's battle is going to be in the Atlantic, specifically about a thousand kilometers southwest from the Azores at a depth of 1,000 meters. The blue Glaucus is a nudibranch, which is Greek for naked lung. They're a group of marine mollusks that are like snails that have lost their shells. As is typical for species, tonight's Glaucus is floating in the Atlantic, upside down. Their top is a dull gray, but their underside contains a vivid splendor of blues and whites, which acts as countershading. Countershading is when something has a coloration that makes it blend in from above and below. So the Glaucus looks blue when looked down upon into the ocean and light gray when looking up and seen against the sky. Tonight's other contestant is adept at engaging with predators using unique visual abilities. Enter the dragon fish. And then because I'm a big Bruce Lee fan, I have a gif of Bruce Lee from Enter the Dragon, which is an amazing movie. The blue glaucus is only about three inches long and feeds normally at the surface, buoyed by an air bubble it keeps in its stomach. And then here, this is important, I cite Lolly and Gimmer in 1989, and this gets to the point that we are evidence-based and we try to provide references as much as we can. However, as the lower ranked seed, tonight's battle takes place far away from the Glaucus's home turf, under a mile in the water in the cold, dark, pressure-filled depths of the Atlantic. At the surface, the Glaucus is an effective predator hunting the clonal siphonophore, the Portuguese man-o-war. However, at this depth, there is no deadly siphonophores to eat. There is nothing but darkness, and in that darkness lies danger. The black dragonfish is hungry, and she is aware that prey is near. She swims in the inky cold void and turns this to her advantage, for you see, she is not without her own capabilities. The black dragonfish has the ability to navigate the inky void by using its own personal spotlight. A row of bioluminescent photopores lines the fish's jaws and provides light to the glaucus and this dark place where all their lights have gone out. The glaucus swims towards that light, a beacon of hope in the sea of despair. Yes, the light, the surface, home. However, in reality, the Glaucus is swimming towards the lurking, fang-filled jaws of the dragonfish. The black dragonfish strikes with complete surprise and slashes at the Glaucus's flaccid and soft skin. But, remember when I told you that Glaucus eats really dangerous manowars? Well, the Glaucus too has a trick up its proverbial sleeves. The Glaucus has the ability to sequester the poison from the manowars and incorporate it into its own bodies. The black dragonfish, however, swallows the glaucus whole. Slime of the black dragonfish's stomach protects it from the sequestered toxin released by the glaucus in its death throes. With a small burp and some indigestion, the black dragonfish starts to patrol for additional prey in the darkness of the depths. Black dragonfish defeats the blue glaucus. Uh, it's like reliving it all over again. 
My poor heart can't take it. This is why we always recommend people do a head bracket and a heart bracket. <laughs> <laughs> because, because, like, I actually had to stop filling out a bracket because I would get really, really irate. And I have a well-established pro-monkey agenda. And apes always wipe the floor with them, right? Like, that's just how it goes. And so it was like, you know what? This is too heartbreaking. I just need to step back so I can be a, a, as unbiased of a narrator and organizer as possible. And, and so we generally tell people, like, do a do the heart bracket where you have your faves advance out to champion and then also do a follow-up one that maybe is a little bit more evidenced. That sounds like good advice. Now, for those of you listening at home, what Josh just read is a long series of tweets and, like all storytelling, a lot of thought goes into style, wording, and timing. I try to go about 30 seconds between starting to write the next tweet so that they come up about every 45 seconds because especially early on we got a lot of battles to go through and i can't let each battle go for 10 minutes because then we're going to be here for you know the entire night um this one was a little bit longer because we were getting towards the end and we had fewer battles um so i could i could play with the length of it a little bit and i distinctly remember i had that one tweet was just the word but and three lines and I let that one linger for a little bit longer because that is such narrative power that completely disrupts the flow and gives hope to those who assume that one is losing and despair to one who thinks that they're winning. So both sides suddenly pay attention. It is three letters, but has such um, command of that narrative flow. And so I, I was definitely toying with the audience a little bit there towards having that come through. And then, you know, I used science about the sequestering of the, uh, the Man of War scene, which is super cool, to provide a plausible experience. And had the dies roll differently, and had we had the that, that upset going there, that would have been one way that I could have potentially walked that in. But in this case, you know, fortune was not in the favor of there, and so we, we had it swallowed whole. But I think more narratively, I, I think, you know, we've gotten really good feedback from people crying and cheering and, and really becoming engaged in it. Yeah, definitely. And, and what we know actually from empirical research is that it, it's not enough to just give people a series of facts. The facts have to be interwoven in a story and play a role in what's happening in the story for people to remember them. And so, you know, there's really great pedagogical research about the use of narrative in learning and history and, and some of the other kinds of non-science-based fields have really leaned into narrative as a, as a teaching device. It's deeply embedded in traditional cultures. Right? Narrative stories about the natural world and moral expectations are standard practice for, for young human leaning, learning around the world and have been for a long time in the history of our species, prehistory of our species. So what we find is that that makes the you know quote unquote player or viewer they're actively engaged in the story katie with a group of colleagues including josh actually put together a paper last year on this phenomenon called education and outreach march mammal madness and the power of narrative in science outreach in it they explore literature on public education science communication and the practice of collective performance science it turns out that there is a lot of grounding for the effectiveness of story and immersion into that story. In 2019 alone, March Mammal Madness's material had already reached 1% of all high school students in the United States. 
Here is Katie with more on why. So instead of passively experiencing the story, they are reading what the narrator is creating, building that imagery in their mind, and then all of a sudden you have a but dot dot dot. Or I really like using word sound effects. So like, you know, you'll have a male baboon with their giant canines biting down on like a bobcat leg. And you'll, you know, that scene, like the biting down and all of a sudden you'll just write with all these exclamation marks. And you'll see, you'll see the comments come in rapid fire, like a truth or a lake, a truth or a lake, a truth or a lake. What is it? What is it? And like they want it. And, and if you can have a battle that kind of goes back and forth, like plot twist, plot twist, plot twist. One of the common comments that we get, especially when we get out to the elite trait and the, the final war, people have come to love these animals. They're generally more equally matched the more the tournament advances. Like people at the end of a night of battles are like, I, uh, I need to go settle down, right? Like, like happens when you're watching a really exciting sporting event, right? And you're jumping up and like, people talk about startling their family members or their pets because they are yelling at Twitter about the story they're being told that they're creating in their own minds. To me, this is exquisite and wonderful and we could not have created it better if we had started out from cognitive and evolutionary first principles. Obviously, over the last nine years, this project that started as a whim has grown and gotten more and more popular. But where does March Mammal Madness go from here? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I would never have expected we'd be here at this juncture from the beginning, right? And not only has it continued, but it has leveled up in magnificent ways as people that love playing, who love the, what it is, show up and they say, I have this skill set or I have this talent or I'd like to contribute this. Or like, we now have this beautifully designed bracket because a graphic designer messaged me and was like very kindly, basically said, we need to save every player from the tragedy that is your PowerPoint bracket. And I've made this for you, You're, you know, and, it, and it's beautiful. And Will showed up with that and he's, he shows up every year. And now we have the original bracket with the English common names, we have the Spanish common names, we have the Latin binomial, we have jumbo versions of these for little kids that wanna fill it out because you know all of it on one page can require some kind of precise penmanship. We have puppeteers that started a sports show, a rundown of what happened to the battles that like are closing in on some of their videos have like almost 75,000 views that get shown in classrooms year after year. And so where do I want this to go? I just want it to keep being this manifestation of a celebration of the natural world by this amazing collective of wonderful, kind, caring, thoughtful, skilled people that have all sorts of abilities, right? Scientists and, and puppeteers and artists. And it has become what it is because people keep surprising me. I hope that it just it continues to do that as we move forward. I would like to get an educator-specific Facebook page that is moderated by educators, but other than that, I would less like to see how it grows in these magical, magnificent ways. Yeah, I always think of Marshmallow Madness as a, as a carnival, where there are certain big top events, but there is also a freak show, and there is also a like fried food section, and there is also, you know, whirly gigs, and there's all these sort of things. And so no matter what your interests are, we've got a space that you can feel at home at within it, and something that celebrates what you are able to bring to it. So now, 
listeners, what we need you to do is print out your brackets and follow along in this epic tournament between animals. Do so by visiting the ASU Library Guide for March Mammal Madness. We'll have it in our podcast description. And get your brackets filled out by March 14th. You can also follow along on Twitter with the hashtag 2022MMM and the official Twitter account of this year's tournament, 2022MMM Let's Go. Come for the thrills, chills, and the heartache, but stay for the science education. I got my eye on the pangolin and the orca, or the romp of otters. Thank you to our guests, Katie and Josh. And thanks to you, our listeners. Be sure to like, subscribe, and share our podcast with your network. And we'll see you next time on an all-new Ocean Science Science Radio. Seriously, this Mammals Collective is wild. Though I am a little sad there is no Parliament of Rooks or Murder of Crows. A conspiracy of lemurs or an embarrassment of pandas wasn't enough for you? I mean, not even a cabinet of yaks. <laughs> and Andrew cries a miserable, miserable mile. Um, what was the citation? <laughs> sorry, sorry, yeah, insane. Just out of curiosity, what is the citation for the, the mucus in the stomach? Going through here. Um, I don't have one listed there. Ah! But that is, I, I didn't make it. Gotcha! It's a gotcha interview! Gotcha! That's it, I'm I done. didn't know this!